president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor, and also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note the professor is also a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have two guests in the studio. Um, one of my good friends, Jason Barr, he's a principal at Lovell Manick Partners down here in Philadelphia. Jason, thanks for coming to the studio. Thank you. Uh, and one of uh, Jason's friends, Don Calcogni, the chief investment officer at Mercer Advisors, a Philadelphia suburb-based uh, independent wealth manager. Thanks for coming to the studio, Don. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're going to get into, uh, we have these two guys here in the for the hour with us in the studio, uh, and we're, we're going to be happy to take calls. Uh, Don's firm does a lot of work with clients, uh, Mercer Advisors, and so we'd be happy to talk to you about questions on your mind. You can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Uh, you know, throughout the show, uh, you know, let us know if there are things on your mind, things about your portfolio, things about the markets, how interest rates are impacting equities. We're, we'll be happy to take your calls. Uh, but Don, maybe before we get to, you know, uh, let's introduce a little bit about Mercer Advisors and, and yourself, your background. Um, tell people a little bit about, you know, your background and then your firm's background. Sure. Uh, so th thank you, Jeremy. The my, my background's in finance. I've been in the advisory space for close to 25 years. Uh, graduate background in finance from Chicago, and uh, also have a graduate background in tax law. And I've been working with uh, individual clients, private clients, for close to 25 years. Uh, Twelve of those years have been at Mercer Advisors. Mercer is a $10 billion uh, national fee-only uh, wealth management firm that also provides tax services and estate planning services in-house. Uh, we've been in business since 1985. Uh, we are a non-commission firm, so we do not sell any insurance products. We do not sell variable annuities or anything along those lines. Um, we are very much a, uh, uh, a consulting firm to our clients. Well, thanks for that introduction. And Jason, I'm going to come to you in a second for your introduction, but I just got to know we've got Professor Siegel on the line. Professor, thanks for taking some time with us today. Yeah, I mean, interesting markets. Uh, will they or won't they, as it moves past that health care reform, uh, the market wants to move on to tax reform. You know, the uh, Affordable Care Act, so complicated and the changes are so complicated, doesn't have any direct effect. They want them to move on, uh, and it's back and forth on that. But also take a look at what's happened to oil. It's up a little bit today, but 4784 don't forget, OPEC was targeting around 60. So there's downward pressure there on, 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 on the oil market, to be sure. And that really tells you that the Fed should never, you know, think about moving four up uh, on, on uh, this year. 
uh, and that already the amount that they've moved up is already, you know, having pressure on some of those commodity markets. But the market is 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 wants wants Congress to move on, regulation reduction, tax reform, uh, and if it doesn't pass. The um, Care Act, maybe we have to go to tax reform and, and do some horse trading. Some of the people want one thing and on the other one and, and, and make a deal so that uh, both both will pass. Yeah, well, it would be interesting if he can really strike the art of the deal, as, as he's known for. On, on can, he, can he get these deals to come together? Uh, it's going to be interesting trading there, as you talked about. On the earnings front, I know you and I were talking about just valuations in the market. I was I was looking into... The earnings for the S and P this year, the operating earnings estimates are like 106. Next year, earnings estimates are already for 130. And we're talking about you know that oil price. How much of the increase in that you know the 23 percent that S and P is figuring earnings are increasing? It's about a quarter of that gain is coming from the energy sector. Yeah. Um, so it, it is that is a, a big part it's, of what could. Important. I, I mean, you're not going to get, I think, that gain at 47. Yeah. So I think you're going to need. You're going to need a higher price than that, and of course it could go up. But those estimates, which are not supposed to reflect tax uh, reductions, are certainly extremely optimistic. Uh, you know, lower regulations could certainly boost some of these earnings up over here. But uh, you know, looking forward, S and P over the last two, three years, as well as other analysts, have been really far above what finally came out on these earnings. So I think I think we begin to need we would get this market moving now. We need some really concrete moves on tax reduction or really some solid upward guidance on earnings gains. Sure. Um, Jason, Don, any questions for the professor while we have him on the line? I guess my question would be, Professor, to, to what extent is the uh, the 128 that we're looking at in terms of earnings on S&P, to what extent would you argue that is already reflected in current prices, um, or, or, or does the market have yet to really digest potentially what you're saying, the lower price of oil uh, and, and really its subsequent impact on earnings? So you, you, you mentioned a 108 number? Or 120, 130 is the, 130 the for next 2017-yeah. Well, 130.66. I mean, obviously, when you look at that, it's selling at, uh, what, 17, 17 and a half, a very reasonable estimate. Wow. Uh, but when you look at, you know, last year's, we're at 21, and, and, and that's, uh, that's on the high side. Now, again, look at that 10-year. Two, below 240, clearly the Fed is not behind the curve. If they're behind the curve, you would see it way near three. The, basically, they say this is enough of a hike. So, you know, my prediction that you know we may get to three this year and three and a half at the end of the cycle uh, gives you a permanently lower interest rate structure. And in my opinion, that should raise the equilibrium PE ratios from six, fifteen, sixteen, hopefully. You know, I mean, up to 1920. Um, so if we can get that, we can get that 130. We we got we got another 10, 15 percent. But as we've known, those numbers a year hence have faded 10 to 15 dollars uh, as the year has actually progressed. 
Yeah, so we'll see. It's interesting, two-thirds of this increase in earnings is really from tech, healthcare, and energy. So we'll yeah. see if oil is, you know, certainly there should be some pressure on oil. But well, then we'll tech, s- tech, tech, tech is looking good, and of course, a lot of it, again, we have what's going on with the, with the dollar and whether we're going to have a border adjustment tax, which will change dollars. And, you know, again, I've, I've voiced my opposition to it because I think it's going to cause chaos and in the international capital markets in terms of debtors and creditors. Um, and uh, that uncertainty uh, would be a, a downturn. But that's a very, very open question at this point. If I may, I just want to ask the professor one more more question. Yes, um, th- there's been some concern potentially that there is a, a short-term credit crunch uh, beginning in China. And I'm just curious what your thoughts would be with respect to what impact that may have on global capital markets and specifically the U.S. equity market. Well, you know, uh, and I'm not an expert on China, so, uh, I, you know, I don't know the current stand. China wanes and waxes as its importance to the U- U.S. Um, obviously, when when it was really going down a few years ago, everyone looked at China to open the U.S. market. Now that we realize, hey, it isn't such a hard landing, there's less concern, but there is a property bubble. There is some, a lot of speculation, although the Chinese are required to put 50% down on equity, so there isn't the, the type of uh, uh, basic bubble that we had during the financial crisis. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what really is happening in, in China. Uh, I just know at the present time, the market's uh, uh, attention has moved away to China and, and clearly to Trump and his agenda. So there would have to be a pretty big event in China, I think, to turn attention into that direction. Well, Professor, I, I know you're stretched here on time. Thanks for, for calling in. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Bye. So, uh, you know, we're going to continue the conversation for the rest of the hour. We have Don Calcagni, the chief investment officer at Mercer Advisors, in the studio with us, and Jason Barg, a principal at Lovell Minnick. Uh, we got Don to give himself an introduction here. Jason, uh, you also were a Wharton graduate here, did the MBA at Wharton. Always good to get more Wharton graduates back on campus. Yeah, thank, thanks, Jeremy. And it's uh, it's really great to be here, actually. it's uh, It's been a couple of years since I've been back at Huntsman Hall. So uh, there, this studio wasn't here when I when I was here. Um, so uh, my, my background is I am a I'm a principal at, at Lovell Minnick. Um, I started my investing career at, after Wharton at Goldman Sachs in the investment banking group there, um, covering financial service companies. And uh, I, I joined Lovell Minnick about seven years ago um, to to invest in um, financial service companies. And that's what we do. We we invest in middle market financial service firms. Um, we have about a, a billion seven of, of committed capital, um, and and we we essentially provide equity capital to to growing firms. And that equity capital can be used for things like management buyouts, ownership uh, succession, recapitalization, various growth initiatives. Um, we have about twenty people. We're headquartered right outside of Philadelphia, with offices in in New York and Los Angeles. Very nice. So the financial services, that's certainly been one of the areas that, uh, you know, the professor talked about Trump trades uh, in some ways, and financials are, are certainly one that have, have perked up since the election. Um, but Don, let's, let's come back to you for a second and and thinking about people and, and what you focus on at Level Minute, Jason, that's 
you know, maybe not what everybody here listening in will be able to invest in. Certainly financial professionals or certainly endowments, RIAs, pensions will sort of use firms like you. Don, you cater to a different clientele, maybe people more generally listening in. So maybe walk through, um, you know, your typical client that, that's looking at, at Mercer Advisors and this type of services you're, you're offering. Sure, happy to. Uh, our, our typical client is, is an affluent uh, household uh, would typically have investable assets between, uh, I would say, of at least about a million dollars or more. Uh, these are clients who are extremely busy. Um, certainly, these are clients that are high-income earners. They're in high tax brackets. Uh, they have a lot of moving parts in their financial lives. They have to get their wills in order. They're looking for more integrated tax and legal planning, and of course, integrating that with their portfolio management. So. Our clients are those who are rapidly approaching retirement. They have intergenerational wealth uh, transfer concerns, and those are the clients we work with, and uh, we do a great job working with them. So now, when people have less than a million dollars, which may be a number of people listening in, um, what, where, you know, what are the types of things you think they where they should be going for? Well, there are still there are many advisory firms that can continue to work with clients at lower asset levels, and so do we. I mean, so I'm saying that's probably our average okay. client, but we have clients as uh, investable assets with as little as $500,000. Um, but there are many solutions for clients out there who are looking for help. It really depends on the type of help that, that a family, uh, that a client would need. Um, and of course, there are the robo-advisor firms that are out there now, but certainly the, the mutual fund supermarkets have solutions as, as well. Um, we would certainly encourage folks to focus on working on uh, working with an advisor in a fee-only or a fiduciary capacity yeah. uh, and try to avoid the commission side of the industry. So let's talk about the fiduciary capacity. I mean, that's a, a term, you know, a lot of people have heard this rule, the fiduciary rule that's going through. Um, it was sort of passed under President Obama. And the questions of, with Trump, will he change the fiduciary rule? Will that change what people are offering? For people listening in who may not have a fiduciary-oriented advisor, what are the things that they should be looking for and, and how you differentiate yourselves? So a, a fiduciary, a registered investment advisor is considered a fiduciary under the Securities and Exchange uh, uh, Commission, the Advisor Act of 1940. Um, so that is a legal term. So a fiduciary is a firm that does not sell any financial products and earns no third-party compensation. So my advice to our to your listeners would be work with an advisory firm where 100% of their revenue stream comes directly from clients uh, like you. And you want to make sure that they are independently owned. Hopefully they don't have any other conflicts of interest with respect to product recommendations and things like that. So um, without mentioning names, much of much of traditional Wall Street focuses on a more transaction-based product distribution type of model, which is very different from working with an RIA that is a fiduciary. Yeah, I just want to give out our number again. If you want to call us to get involved, ask Don or Jason a question, you can call us 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. We'd be happy to take your, your questions about portfolios and working with advisors and any, any questions you might have about the markets and how that impacts your, your investment strategies. Jason, as he's talking about the fiduciary rule and you guys look at financial services companies broadly at Level Minic, how are you? How is that changing how you're thinking about either some of your portfolio companies or thinking about how you're investing in financial services? Yeah, the regulation is is a very significant impact on on sort of our investment thesis around around different companies, um, and far before far far long ago uh, before the the fiduciary standard was even an issue, 
we we were big believers in in financial advice moving more towards a fee based orientation. Um, and full disclosure, we're, we're investors in Mercer. We have been investors in Mercer's for 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 some time, and. Um, you, you see the, the industry generally moving in that direction. The fiduciary standard uh, that the Department of Labor put out, no doubt, accelerated some of that, some of that migration. Um, and you see larger firms that, that offered both commissions, uh, commission-oriented accounts, as well as fee accounts, uh, really shifting more towards the, the fee-based approach. Um, and you know the the fact that the sort of with the Trump administration and the and the the pullback or the potential pullback around the fiduciary standard, I'm not sure that it ultimately has a. I, I do think long term the industry goes in this in this direction. Um, so you know, Donna, I'm actually curious to to see what hear what you're thinking or seeing in the marketplace, or are are you thinking that? Um, that some of the firms that have already sort of in, uh, put in place new regulations and new rules for their advisors because of the fiduciary standard, if if the standard ends up getting rolled back, do you think those firms are going to change their tune? Uh, I do not think those firms are going to change their tune, it's, and it's a great point. Uh, j- just the mere threat of regulation can often significantly impact industry. And so whether the DOL's uh, fiduciary standard, which is uh, somewhat different than the SEC's fiduciary standard, um, but whether it becomes law or not, depending on what the administration wants to do, I would say is irrelevant. Many firms have uh, invested significant capital and uh, time in training their advisors, reconfiguring their tech platforms for the DOL fiduciary mandate. Uh, Merrill, um, you know, several different investment banks on Wall Street have already committed that they are not going to roll back and shy away from the fiduciary standard. They're going to embrace it. Um, so I don't see it changing, to be quite candid. Let me just reintroduce our guests. You were talking with Don Cogney, the CIO of Mercer Advisors, Jason Barr, Global Minnick. You both referenced um, sort of technology in a way, the robo-advisors. Jason, how do you view that as an investment side? And then, Don, I'm going to question you on the same sort of follow-up, is, is how do you view that as a competitor to, towards what you're doing? Well, uh, first and foremost, we're, we're, we're believers in wealth management, the whole sector. Um, we, we believe that there's a, there's a great need for financial advice in, in this country, and wealth managers are, are best positioned to, to provide that advice. Coming out of the, the financial crisis, there, there's no doubt that assets have migrated from larger institutions to independent firms, firms like Mercer, um, and and I, I think that 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 trend is here to stay. When when you look at when you look at different profiles of wealth management firms from from our from where we sit, which is to invest in those in those firms, um, we 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 do have a, we've we've certainly been participants. In the space, we have not invested in the on the robo side. Uh, Multiples for, are too high. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I definitely think value it's, investors it, don't like it, paying. We're, we're growth investors, but they are they are high <laughs> they are high um, multiples. I, I think it's it's really a venture dominated game right now. It's more of a it's more of a technology, um, whereas uh, more mature businesses like a like a Mercer who cater frankly to a different audience. I mean, if you. If you look at the average account size at most of the robos, 
Don, Don mentioned sort of average account size of a million dollars plus. They're well, well south of there at the robos, and and that's because to the degree that you have a you have a larger set of assets, you 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 want to talk to somebody and you want to get but, advice. But there's no reason Don can't be his own technology provider and have an offering that goes online. I mean, I think everybody, and one of the analogies I've heard is you you you. You will eventually. Everybody will have some kind of offering. Sure. Do you believe that? Uh, I do believe that, and uh, in fact, we are working on our very own yeah. robo offering. Uh, I, I don't see traditional wealth management firms, or what I would say, full service wealth management firms like Mercer Advisors, competing directly with robos. Um, I think the great thing that robos are doing is they are bringing younger and smaller investors into capital markets and beginning to acclimate them to being investors and seeing what that experience is all about. I think as those firm, uh, as those investors' wealth grows, their needs will become more complex and they will eventually graduate into a more full-service wealth management model. So I don't look at the robos as a competitor vis-a-vis yeah. -vis larger full-service firms. I think that they're actually going to be a, uh, a complement to those firms. Yeah, partners or compliments is, is seems like where it's going. That's what I see. Um, so, I mean, as, as, as when you think about the offering of who you're going to try to target with that, and maybe it's still early stages for you, mm -hmm. so maybe not want to talk too much about it. But anything on is that is, is is part of your view that it could help you target smaller accounts, the children of families. I mean, that seems to be some of the discussion points I hear in the industry. Uh, correct. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, if we think of most full-service wealth management firms, to some degree, struggle with uh, managing assets for, uh, for for the children, for example, of our traditional clients. Right, Those are smaller accounts, yet they still have a need, and certainly full-service firms want to keep the next generation engaged. So I do see the robo-offering uh, speaking to millennials, to smaller investors, um, but even for you know potentially uh, larger investors who maybe don't have very complex needs or aren't looking for more sophisticated portfolio management, they're looking for something that's you know generally simplistic asset allocation. Um, but I think the target market would be the smaller accounts and the millennials. So let's let's talk a little bit about how you think about building portfolios. So you get a typical client, let's just say an average investor, because it's hard to target very specific needs. But mm -hmm. maybe talk about your average client, how you think about building portfolios. Uh, happy to. When it comes to building a portfolio, at Mercer Advisors, our view is that the portfolio design, the asset allocation, if you will, is something that you solve for through a planning process, right? We don't like to begin with sort of a portfolio and force it into the client's broader financial plan. All clients have different uh, capacities for risk-taking, capacities for savings. They all have different financial objectives with respect to what they want their portfolio to do for them. If you think about that mathematically for a moment, you can solve for the optimal portfolio if you know what your client is capable of doing and ultimately what um, what they need the portfolio to do. Um, all of that said, when it comes time to constructing the portfolio, we are very much a, a quantitative firm and we look at markets, not in terms of sectors or industries per se, but we look at uh, in building a portfolio around these common themes that we see in academic literature that really drives market beating returns. And that would be things like value and quality companies, uh, smaller companies over time, uh, high yield dividend paying companies, 
Um, so when we build a portfolio, that's what we're looking for, deep value, momentum, size, quality, and things along along those lines. So it sounds like we, we think along similar lines. Uh, Don and I are just meeting for the first time today, but we're definitely very like-minded, I think, in, in thinking about these factors here. Um, I just want to offer to our listeners again, if you're, you know, we've been talking a lot about financial advice, talking about the technologies. Um, if you're listening, if you use a robo-advisor, we're, we're curious, you know, call us, give us a call. Why, why not have you been using them? Uh, if you're looking for more suggestions on, on how you're own, building your own portfolios, we'd love to hear what's on your mind. Um, you know, Jason, as you think about your own personal portfolio management, um, you know, you've got Lovell Minick, private equity. How do you think about um, your, your own situations? What, what, what do you think? Well, you know, I think maybe I'll talk about I'll talk about how we think about portfolio construction um, at Level Minic in the areas that 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 we're most interested in, and and again we're we're because we're so focused on financial services that's the that's the sector sector that that uh, I'm I'm most likely to be able to speak to in an intelligent way. Uh, so with with respect to with respect to that we're we we're investors in, in addition to wealth management we we invest in asset management businesses um, we have a a few firms and, and sort of playing off of, you know, there's there's different there's different ways to invest out there and with with respect to sort of active management, we believe that there's areas where where active management really does pay off. So if you think about sort of international investing or something that that's frequently talked about today is is ESG investing, mm. where where um, investors and and I think this is. This is more common with with millennials. Investors are really interested in in socially responsible uh, types of initiatives, and I, Don, I imagine that that's something that that on occasions you talk to you talk to clients about. Um, ESG seems all over the map. I mean, something we talk about. I mean, what is the typical? I'm, I'm I'm absolutely curious to hear how Don thinks about it in terms of how they would build it into a portfolio, because um, ESG means a lot of things to a lot of people. Sure, uh, it does, <laughs> and you're right. There's certainly a, a, a broad definition of ESG. Um, when we think about building ESG into a portfolio, there, there's really two or three different layers at which we can do that. Um, certainly, we can focus on using mutual funds or, EF, uh, or ETFs that have an ESG or a socially conscious type mandate. Um, the, the challenge with using a pooled vehicle is there's no customization, yeah. right? You have to accept whatever the uh, SRI, socially responsible investing mandate, is at the fund level. Uh, another way to do it is building a portfolio of actual individual securities and then applying a series of screens. So you could screen out big polluters or human rights violators or um, – you know, we even have a, a Sharia compliant screen that we can apply and screen out pork and usury and things along those lines. Um, there, you can be much more surgical. It can be much more customized because we own the individual stocks. So, what percent of your clients do you say employ these ESG screens? Uh, right now, it is a small percentage. It's yeah. probably south of ten percent. Okay. But I will say. Uh, interestingly, and it's something I'm starting to measure, it is probably one of our most rapidly growing segments of our business. And we certainly saw substantial demand for it on the West Coast, but certainly as social responsible mandates have evolved, hmm. we now have mandates that even speak to other parts of the country potentially that maybe have different social issues that they want to adjust their portfolio for. So it is growing very rapidly. Do you think, Don, that it's, it's sort of table stakes these days for a wealth management firm to be able to to, ha to offer ESG product? Uh, if we're not there yet, we will be there soon, to where if you don't have an offering, 
uh, you better get one fast. And that's partly because as this wealth transfers to that next generation, the next generation is, I, I would argue, significantly more socially conscious than, than their predecessors. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about it, but the wealth is still concentrated in the older generation. So <laughs> the question is, how quickly does it transfer? Um, yeah. And then what, you know, where it does seem to, you know, it does seem at least today that the customized solutions is what people, because you're like you're saying, the people on the West Coast might have a different than the people on the East Coast or the middle of the country or wherever it is. Um, different people have different values there. So do you, do you view it as going to be customized as the answer for, for a long time? Or do you think that we people should be building, uh, this is a selfish, interesting question, people like myself, <laughs> should, be, should we be building these ESG screened, weighted, Factor products? Uh, and that, that's an interesting question. It's an area where I am doing a lot of research presently. Because okay. here's the issue. Once once you apply a screen to a portfolio, uh, we get something that uh, finance folks are very uh, familiar with called tracking error. And so the tighter yeah. your screens, the more companies you remove from your portfolio, um, you are potentially introducing more risk to the portfolio. So that's something that you have to balance is uh, increased risk in your portfolio because now it's more concentrated relative to having a portfolio that manifests your, your, your values. Um, I, my personal view is people should be thinking more intimately about their values and, and connecting that to their portfolio. Um, just my personal view is that that is how we are going to have a positive impact on, on the world that we would like to see is through dollars. Um, but that's just my personal view. Not everybody agrees with me I'm on that. I'm sure. So. This, is, this is all over the map, this discussion. This is great. I'm talking to Don Cockagney, of Chief Investment Officer at Mercer Advisors. We've got Jason Barg, a principal at Lovell Minnick. Uh, they can be with us for the, the rest of the program. We're going to have to take a short break. But if you want to get involved in our conversation, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about investment strategies, portfolio management, private equity equity, financial services. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. Join me in the studio for the rest of the show. We've got Don Calcagni. He's the CIO of Mercer Advisors, Jason Barg, a principal at Level Minnick. Uh, and Jason, we, we talked a lot with Don on the first part of the program about his portfolio strategies. Uh, at Level, you guys focus on private equity uh, financial services, private equity in particular, maybe, you know, for people, we talk a lot on this program, traditional stocks and bonds um, with Professor Siegel. Um, why don't you talk through higher level, like how do how should people be thinking about private equity and alternatives? What part, uh, how much of their portfolio should they be thinking about that? How do you think about that broadly? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, and, and private equity is a is a relatively new asset class, um, and you know you have to you have to look at the the asset class on along a spectrum. So there's early stage investing, which is really venture capital, um, and then there's later stage investing, which is which is more private equity, more buyout. Uh, the, and and you know oftentimes the household names, the firms that are out there, the KKRs and Blackstones, th those are those are firms that have. Have really gotten into more of the buyout, large, large private equity game, and then in between is sort of growth, growth capital, where um, firms will invest in in companies that have revenues, um, oftentimes have profits, but need growth capital to to go after a particular uh, growth strategy. We sit somewhere between kind of the growth growth strategy and the and the buyout strategy. We're investing in middle market companies um, in the financial services sector. Um, but not sort of the mega buyouts and, and certainly not the, the startups. 
Uh, also within private equity, if you're if you know if you're considering allocation into the space, there's there's different types of managers. Some managers will have a broad mandate where they're they're generalist firms. They'll invest in any sector of the economy or even globally. Um, and then there's other managers that are more specialist. Um, so for for we, financial we, services, you we guys focus are on financial <laughs> services. It's a it's a it's a niche. Um, I think I think if you if you look at certain sectors, they're more likely to have a specialist manager because there's more there's more regulations or there may be more nuances with that sector. So financial services, healthcare, that sort of thing has a you know more of a specialist tilt. Is the I mean I think of I think of private equity. I just think tech. I mean, is that where the sexy private equity is, and you're a little bit less sexy private equity? <laughs> uh, well, that's that's a little offensive. No, no, uh, I think. Uh, I think there, there's no doubt that there's been a lot of capital raised for in, investing in technology firms. I, I think that any private equity firm, it's, and, and we're, we're very focused on this, needs to needs to think about technology, and uh, we, we'll we'll invest in financial technology firms. Um, but but all of our firms um, have technology as a top priority, so they're focused on what they can do to enhance their own technology at their firm. Uh, Don talked a little bit about what Mercer's doing. Um, that that's a core that's that's a core aspect of all of our investment thesis is to sort of grow these companies using technology. And at, at the end of the day, what we're looking for is we're looking at at financial services firms that are differentiated, where there can be scarcity value created, and a lot of times you need technology to do that. Yeah, yeah, technology is a it's a significant part of Mercer's uh, business operating plan is uh, using technology to better leverage staff. So technology, I, I would argue, is a theme that really cuts across uh, sectors or industries and different investment type vehicles or portfolio companies. So, um, you know, uh, much of what we do at Mercer Advisors is driven by technology. Uh, it helps us achieve scale, helps us uh, manage really the, the client's experience uh, with the organization, and also really helps us to standardize those parts of our business um, that that can be standardized and allows us to focus on those things that deliver more value. What, what do you think about Jason's asset class in general, a private equity? I mean, is that something Mercer has been thinking about? Is it something you think about doing more? What, what's the problems of, of Jason's asset class? Yeah, we, well, we are active in, in private equity, uh, more so on the private credit side. Um, I mean, and certainly it, it is a diversifier, right? It is a legitimate asset class. It is a diversifier relative to clients that have portfolios that are overweight in public securities, public stocks and bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, things like that. Um, part of the challenges with the asset class is it is opaque. There are concerns, of course, around auditing and transparency and, and things along those lines. Um, more, more, more broadly, with respect to traditional private clients, unless they are an ultra high net worth family, part of the challenge is the lockup that goes with traditional private equity investing, where uh, you're looking at locks of anywhere from seven to ten years, and for many clients, that's probably a bridge too far. Um, so private credit, where we are making you know a series of loans, uh, whether it be real estate loans or leveraged buyouts, you know funding that through through credit arrangements. Our clients tend to be more interested in that because they see an immediate return in the form of, of interest. Um, there's also a sub-asset class that, uh, that we're starting to see, which is more dividend-oriented private equity. These are, mm -hmm. tend to be more buy-and-hold type private equity concerns. Clients tend to like that as well um, because of the immediate return on, on investment. Jason, you see people democratizing. I mean, one of the things you see as a trend in financial services, just more access vehicles, making things that used to be institutional only 
type investments more to the broader masses? I mean, that's sort of ETFs in a nutshell is trying to do that in a lot of ways. Do you think, and now obviously private equity is the exact opposite of ETFs, right? So one's daily liquidity, private equity is seven-year lockups. <laughs> but is there anything that is happening that would make it more generally available? There, there's a great deal of interest in, in figuring out a way to to get private equity in the hands of, of retail investors. I mean, we all, we all know that more and more people are are having power over their own destiny with respect to with respect to their personal finances. So if you if if you were historically um, a, a recipient of a pension fund, you by definition had private equity exposure. Today, if you just have a defined contribution plan or an IRA, you you don't have that exposure. So there are firms that have recognized it. I think that the challenge of of the the lockup period and the illiquidity is is a real one for a retail investor. So there's, you know, there's there there needs to be mechanisms put in place to gain some liquidity over time. And as private equity has gotten larger, it's 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 actually become more of an efficient market. There's there's secondary firms out there that will that will buy portions of private equity firms or private equity uh, interests. So it, it's it. I, I do think over time, um, people will will figure out how to crack the nut and can get some private equity exposure in retail investor hands. I, I will add that this is. That, um, thank you, Jason. I, I think that's a problem that we definitely have to solve as an industry. Um, I could even see it becoming a public policy challenge. And the reason I say that is, if we just look at the number of publicly traded companies uh, on the NYSE. Over the last, I'll say, 15 years, that has declined by as much as 50%. Yeah. So we are seeing a broad shrinking of uh, really the equity market. And what that means is longer term, uh, in order for investors to build wealth and to manage wealth, they're going to need access to other vehicles. They're going to need access to capital building opportunities outside of public markets. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Don Calcagni, the CIO of Mercer Advisors, Jason Barg of Lovell Minnick. We're talking about building portfolios, different asset classes. Call us 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Happy to take your calls. One of the things, I mean, Don, we've talked about in terms of individual investors, one of the issues um, tends to be, and sort of there's an interesting dichotomy, you know, private equity, you're locked up. You can't trade for seven years. Maybe that's actually better for Investors who tend to overtrade have these behavioral problems, and they, you know, shoot themselves in the foot too often. What, what's your what's your research talk about these behavioral tendencies? Yeah, great, great point, Jeremy. Uh, I mean, th that's one of the the huge ironies of the modern uh, capital markets. Is you know, since since the early '90s, we've seen the democratization of the markets uh, through uh, online discount brokerage firms. It's so inexpensive today to trade. Um, we've seen the rise of ETFs, uh, the index mutual fund, where you know virtually you can own the S&P 500 index through a mutual fund for next to nothing. The, the irony is that when we look at all the academic literature that studies what exactly average self-directed investors are earning on their portfolios, they are substantially underperforming. Uh, the S&P 500 index, for example, by as much as 500 basis points annually. That's annually. <laughs> yeah. So we are seeing substantial underperformance. And you are right. Um, Brad Barber, Terrence O'Dean at UC Irvine um, have documented that much of that uh, it can be tied to overtrading and behavioral biases. Um, so you're right. I think locking up investors in, in, in principle would probably result in a better return. Uh, the challenge is that that's behaviorally, that's, that doesn't feel very good to today's investor that's constantly plugged into 
business, news. The yeah. news and, and the problem is the technology is just getting it information more in front of people, and so that yeah. creates more incentive to want to trade when they really need less incentive. Want to look at your clients less. All this robo-technology, make your portfolio visible, yeah. that's going to create bad problems. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I could not agree more. And that's part of the challenge, right, is we all support uh, democratization and the evolution of technology. But, you know, sometimes these evolutions don't necessarily have a positive impact on what we want most, which are great positive returns on our wealth. Um, and that's, you know, in, in our view, that's one of the benefits of working with a full-service wealth management firm. There's a lot of work in the fields of psychology. Dick Thaler at Chicago has done a lot of work on Just this. Just read Misbehaving. Just um, a great book. Yep. <laughs> that's a plug for a former professor of mine, Dick Thaler. Um, where if we can just slow things down and, and really help people to engage what we call that system two level of thinking, uh, that they would probably get a much uh, better outcome with respect to their portfolio rather than just sort of, you know, this knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting point that, that lockups or long-term um, illiquidity is, could, be, could be good for investors. It's also, it's also notable that, you know, public, public companies – are are constantly managing to quarterly expectations. They're they're constantly worried about what the street's going to think about their next earnings. The the the, the good part about being uh, owned by a private equity firm or having private investors is that you as a management team, you don't have to manage to quarterly expectations. You can manage to the to the long run. So, private equity firms are interested in sort of 5 to 7 year results. So what that does is it allows companies to invest in various growth growth initiatives. They can invest in technology, which may which may harm near term earnings, but for the future of the company is a, is and its investors is a very positive thing. Now, one of the the trends, I mean, there's been lower fees coming across the industry everywhere, and and one of the things, lower fees are impacting. Uh, you you see trading, and we start to talk about over trading in, in some ways here. How do you see f lower fees on on trading impacting things here, Don? Uh, my personal view, and, and we've seen this just in the last couple of weeks, right? We've seen a, a huge fee war between some of the online discount brokerage firms, and that's a good thing. That that's what we want modern capitalism to do: competition, drive down, drive down costs. Uh, if we think about the, the the value proposition that led to the rise of the mutual fund industry, it was really two things. Uh, one was alpha, uh, which has largely dissipated, depending on who you talk to. So there isn't much value anymore in following some sort of messianic fund manager. Um, the, the second value proposition is that mutual funds provided low-cost diversification uh, to, to smaller investors. Technology is rapidly changing that. As of today, you can actually purchase a basket of stocks that are representative of the S&P 500 index. So you could actually own all of the stocks of the S&P 500 index for as little as 10 basis points. So if you think about that, uh, what's happening in terms of the reduction uh, in trading costs is I would argue that the mutual fund industry's days may be numbered. And that is a strong position to stake out. Yeah. But their value proposition is rapidly dissipating. And I think that's why we're seeing firms like the Vanguard Group getting into the advice business. They're looking for other ways to uh, secure their future. So I know that's a strong claim. Um, but if we just look at the economics behind the industry, I would challenge that uh, 
the future of mutual funds is is limited. You know, anywhere Vanguard has gone, they have been fairly disruptive. And I've and I was on a panel with one of at a, at a digital advice conference, and they absolutely say mm-hmm. we are disrupting advice. <laughs> so does that worry you that Vanguard's coming after the advice industry? Uh, n- not really. And they're right in my backyard, right? So uh, you know, they're right here, suburban Philadelphia-based company. And, and look, a great company. Not, not, I have nothing negative yeah. to say about them. I think p- part of the difference and, and part of the challenge is. Um, if you look at the economics of a mutual fund supermarket, such as a Vanguard, um, I think it's somewhat challenging for them to attract the talent that they need to deliver uh, you know, expert advice to high net worth investors. And so if we look at, um, j- j- again, the economics, right? M- many, att- many attorneys now are moving into the financial advice business, uh, CPAs. So if you're going to offer really genuine expert advice that's comprehensive, I'm not exactly sure that the supermarkets are going to make that capital investment. I mean, they're going to be an interesting one to watch. I mean, yeah. in my book, you know, they, they're not they're they're a different animal because they're not a for-profit institution. I mean, it's a True. mutual fund com- mutual company, so the owners of their funds own the firm, so they're always going to have the lowest cost in the industry unless you're really willing to be a loss leader and sell funds at a loss so you could get yep. money on your platform. Maybe you could That's argue Schwab is doing that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting, they're going to be an interesting one to watch. Jason, how do you weigh through all this in terms of your investments? Well, we, we think about, we think about where, where, can can we invest in firms that are that are going to drive value? So if we if we think about okay, sort of re- reduced fees, there's no question about it. Um, ETFs and index funds have have significantly reduced fees, and um, for for us, we'll say okay, well, where can you find alpha? Where does active management pay off? Um, and and there's certain areas. You believe of the, there's active managers that can pay. Yeah, off? yeah, we we, we certainly do. <laughs> wow. uh, we you know we we believe that um, you know in in less efficient markets like in in emerging markets or in in Asia, firms can still drive tr- alpha by and and you know have a track record of driving alpha through through active management. And then there's there's other and this sort of ties back to to what we were talking about earlier. Are there there there's alternative asset classes. Which are very difficult to replicate through passive management. Um, um, so we talk a lot about liquid alternatives as another area where where active management pays off. Um, and when we think about our own portfolio today, we're focused more on those or or investing in the you know in the trend to, to pass. Let me throw a counter argument there. So um, I, th- I think I'm with Don on some a- aspects here. Don said, "Do you really want to follow this messianic uh, active manager?" Which I like that quote. <laughs> um, use that. No, but listen, anything that most of the active managers start with a quant screen, you know, and so they start with a quant screen and then they apply some subjective decision making to sort of narrow down and get a more concentrated portfolio of their quant screen. So, you know, you could just get rid of that subjective decision-making. We talk about behavioral biases in all these people. The managers aren't indifferent to those behavioral biases. If you just systematize the best thinking, whether it's alternatives, I think all these high-fee, 2% plus, you know, charge 20% of the fees, that is also, not that it's going the way like mutual fund, but we think that's going to come under pressure, and you're going to be able to systematize all those things. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, what we're seeing uh, throughout the entire asset management space is fee compression. And if we look at alpha, what we thought was alpha historically, when we look at you know many of these active managers, what it really was is it was just a form of what we call beta. It was a factor. It was some sort of identifiable fundamental 
quantifiable thing that they were just using to screen and, and really control their tradable universe. And so those things can easily be turnkey. Technology is making it so easy for us to replicate that. And um, and so, again, we would agree. And, and fees, I would say, with respect to fees, fees are, look, they're guaranteed. You sign up for the mutual fund, whatever the fees are, the fees are. And the return, the alpha, that is not certainly guaranteed going forward. One, one more introduction here. We're talking with Dan Cogni of Mercer Advisors, CIO of Mercer, Jason Barg of Lovell Minnick. Jason, we talked a little bit about your active. We'll give you one more chance to defend your active managers here. You Give me give me some of the, the best active managers in your portfolios. Who are you going to defend here? <laughs> well, all of our active managers are very good. Every, okay. all, all of our portfolio companies no, are very strong. Yeah, I think, I, I do think, it, you know, there, there's certain it's interesting because even if you look at even if you look at the the TV screen today and you hear all about about regulation and and the impact that regulation has on on investing in general and you know I I could comment with respect to private equity because private equity is the ultimate sort of active active manager out there um, you know regulation for us is a is a very significant driver of of how we think about the world. So when if if it's the if it's the DOL and its impact on on financial services or if it's tax reform and what the ultimate outcome is there and how that how that impacts um, you know how that impacts companies' earnings or or capital structure is something that's of you know of real interest to to us. Um, you know I don't I don't know um, Don to what degree that that your clients are asking you about about tax reform. Um, and and the impact that it has on their investments, or maybe the impact that it has on them personally when they think about sort of planning and whatnot. But but I, when, when we're thinking about investing, we're thinking about investing in a in a wealth management business, for instance. You know, things like are will four hundred one k contributions be continue to be tax deductible? Um, those are those are real questions that that I think you have to you have to address. Are your clients all? Um, how, how do you say with with these elections and the politics? Are they calling up all crazy one way or the other? Half of them happy, half of them depressed, and figuring out what they're going to do with their emotions on their portfolios. Is that one of your your main issues right now? I mean, absolutely. Gallup ought to just set up in our office, right? Because as the phone calls come in, we can just log who's for, who's against, right? So there's no no sense in even polling. Just sit in our Markets office. are going to crash. Oh, my God. What's he doing? <laughs> exactly. Which is why it's important to have social screens for both conservatives and, you know, and for you yeah, know, liberals. That's interesting. Um, but at the at the end of the day, yes, I mean, tax reform, you know, today, the health care bill, um, all of, just this morning, I was fielding phone calls from some of our nervous clients, curious what what's going to happen. So, um, and look, tax is, at least in our view, tax and regulatory issues are some of the biggest drivers of, of, of market returns. And so we, we certainly have to pay very close attention to those two issues. So, so Jason, one of the, as we were thinking about um, fee pressure, I, I think about your industry at private equity, where you're really making very concentrated bets. Um, it's not where you can, I mean, when I say a lot of these alternative funds, people are gonna be able to systematize and factorize, that would not be true for what you're doing. That, that's true. Um, I, think, I think private equity, is private equity has a long history of very attractive returns, um, and and part of that is is the dynamic that I mentioned earlier around focusing on long term value as opposed to quarterly earnings. 
The other component, uh, something that we try to bring to our companies is 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 an ability to add value. If um, if private equity firms that are that are highly specialized, they may know they may know something about their industry. We can help our companies do things like pursue acquisition strategies. So. Um, we've we've had about 30 platform investments over time, and those investments have done something close to 50 bolt-on uh, acquisitions, and those are those are big those are big value drivers. Um, as are things like developing new strategies, um, thinking about organizational dynamics. Those are things that private equity f- firms can can bring to bear, um, which is certainly it's a it's a different thought process than being a public investor. Don, so is that is that a testament, Mercer? You guys have been in a in a growth phase, acquiring other companies. Is that something Jason's helping you do? Yeah, he, he's actually spot on. I mean, uh, we we've acquired six different firms in the past uh, six months. Uh, certainly, Jason's company has been instrumental in helping us. Uh, Jason himself has been instrumental in helping us, you know, identify those firms and helping to think through how to integrate those firms. So, absolutely, it's a big value add. So, we got about two minutes left. I want you guys to think about closing thoughts here. Um, we've talked about a lot of different topics, from technology to portfolio management. Um, sort of collect some final thoughts. So, Don, any as you think about reaching out to people, listening to the show, listening to replays, who should, you know. Closing thoughts on, on on Mercer Advisors, your firm, and uh, how they should think about you. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, so, so the way to think about Mercer Advisors is we are a firm that helps clients uh, both on the technical side of wealth management, but also on the behavioral side. Uh, which is where I would argue most of the real value is created. So when you look at your portfolio, when you look at your financial planning, just understand that there are two elements to being successful in doing those things well. Uh, One is certainly the technical expertise, but secondarily, it's also having somebody to coach you through some of the behavioral challenges that go along with being successful in those different endeavors. And certainly a full-service wealth management firm like us that is a fiduciary under the law uh, we are optimally positioned to help guide clients through those tough decisions. Well, Don, it's great, been great talking to you. Thanks for coming to the studio. Jason, I'll give you 30 seconds for a final, final point. Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, I know a lot of your your listeners are in the financial services space. I'd say that this is a very exciting time to be in this sector. There's a lot you can do to to, to change the lives of your of your clients, um, things like what Don's doing for, for his clients. So uh, it'll be an interesting uh uh, interesting few months here, a few years, as we see the industry evolve and, and technology re- really become a, a key driver of success. Well, Don, thanks. Don and Jason, thanks for coming to the studio. Uh, I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our producer, sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy D. Schwartz. Mercer Advisors has a Twitter handle. And you can also listen to us on podcast, Behind the Markets. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. Thank you.